John chapter 8. And our passage today is, is pretty dense. There's a lot to it. Um, it's in Mark 8, 27 through 38. And um, we are, I'm going to preach through it, but we're going to take it in parts. And so um, we're going to read through Mark 8, 27 through uh, 30 first. And here's the reading of God's word, at least part of it for now. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them, tell no one about him. See, up to this point in Mark's gospel, Jesus had been performing miracles and healings. He was spending his time teaching, uh, and he was going around Galilee uh, doing ministry with his disciples. And there's something really interesting to me about this passage. And it's that Jesus is here after spending time doing all the miracles, calling his disciples, teaching the crowds, Here he is taking the opportunity to survey the people around him. And Jesus is essentially taking an opinion poll, right? And he uses pretty straightforward questions. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? As we look at Mark's uh, overall narrative, we start to see how um, this all fits into what Mark is trying to convey about Jesus. So much of the narrative up to this point centered on Jesus' identity as the Son of God. Who is this Jesus who teaches with such authority? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Who is this that heals and forgives sin? See, this opinion poll story really serves as a transition point in Mark's gospel account. And what marked the transition is Peter's response to Jesus' question, which is that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. And the Messiah being the anointed one, the anointed king, descended from David, is the one who will deliver his people. He is the Savior. Now, the only other person in Mark's account to to, uh, publicly confess that Jesus is the Christ is a Roman centurion. And this happened at the point of crucifixion, when he had saw how Jesus died. Now, I haven't done a study uh, on the other Gospels, on on how many other people might have been recorded confessing Jesus as the Christ. Um, I'm I'm pretty sure there might be more than just these two. But in Mark's account, to only have two recorded stories, two recorded accounts, for me at least, there's something significant about that. And and what it is, it, it catches my attention, and it seems like and this is kind of uh, an, exception, an inception within the gospel, is that at the same time that Jesus is taking in an opinion poll uh, of those around him, Mark is doing that same thing with his readers. See, one of the faith challenges that we all have to face is to be able to rightly identify who Jesus is. Now, I'm not speaking narrowly about you know, our initial uh, confession of faith where we profess that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ. See, that's important, so I'm not knocking that. That you know, For a lot of our stories, that's very personal, right? And so we, we have that as, as how we got to know Jesus and how we started to follow him. 
But I don't get the sense that Jesus is searching that out. It, it's not that he's around the crowd and saying, hey, you guys need to make that initial profession of faith to really follow me. What I think that Jesus is trying to do with his disciples in the context of this passage is that I think Jesus is actually asking them out of a desire for the, his disciples to walk in greater closeness with him. And this is my first takeaway from, from this part of our passage. Now, reflecting on Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, is something that would be wise for all of us to be doing on a regular basis. See, our reflection on that question should continue throughout different seasons of life, different decades of life. Why? Because our response to that question, whatever that might be, should have a direct impact on our entire being in the way that we choose to live out our faith. And it's okay if at some seasons you identify Jesus more as a friend. It's okay if at certain times you might identify Jesus as, as that brother. But at some point throughout our entire life, we have to be able to have fully submitted to him as our Lord and as our Savior. And the reason why if we recognize that our whole being is affected and our way of life is affected, if you're in a season where you're living in a space that you just feel off, maybe it's because your profession of who Jesus is is not fully aligned. And there's no condemnation, but it's to recognize that that's maybe a starting po uh, place to search it out. Right? So let's continue um, in, into our second part of this passage. And this is, uh, it's, so I'm thinking in chunks. So this is verse 31 through 33. And it reads like this. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Nope. We did this one already. <laughs> no worries. Let me read it out. Um, and he says in verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. If it surprised you how quickly Peter was to go from the man that professed correctly that Jesus is the Christ in a few verses later to be the one that rebukes Jesus, you're not alone. It's pretty jarring. And in part, it's because Mark's gospel, the speed of it, there, there's this urgency and he's trying to push through. And in that, he's bringing out an emphasis and a message here. And what is that? How is it that Peter, who in a way is kind of the spokesperson for all of the disciples, would be the one that gets it wrong? What is it in Peter's belief when he identified Jesus as the Christ, that when Jesus says, hey, I am going to suffer, be rejected, and die, that Peter would say, ah, that's not part of who you're supposed to be. And as we search out the historical background, um, we'll start to understand why. See, the Jewish expectation of the Messiah, they held that uh, uh, 
Jews held to righteousness and justice that was centered in Jerusalem. And that there was this uh, prophesied Savior, the Messiah, that would come and, and essentially crush all of his enemies, all of their enemies, and restore Israel back into the seat of power. It was this belief that empire was going to be rebuilt by this person in Jesus Christ. And so when Peter says, you are the Messiah, although he was correct in one sense, he most likely had the idea that Jesus was this conquering savior. And Jesus was not that. Jesus, that's not his agenda, and that was not his mission. And, and, and when it goes on to say, um, but turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter. And this gets pretty harsh. Get behind me, Satan. I don't know about you, but if I was ever called Satan, I might start crying. Because that's pretty demoralizing. But I don't think that Jesus was at that point attacking Peter, right? It wasn't his person. But it was this belief that Jesus was saying, hey, that does not align with what I am about and what I am going to do. And, and the, the, the dramatic sense of it should highlight kind of the importance of what was happening. See, Jesus was okay if, if maybe people didn't uh, identify him as, as the Christ. See, that was okay with Jesus. But if there's misunderstanding about his kingdom, about what God was about and how people can enter into it, that was infuriating to Jesus. If you remember uh, the, the, um, you know, the, the tossing of the tables, the reason why that happened because that was uh, essentially acting as a barrier from people entering into what God had for them. Just like that. <laughs> Jesus was like, no, it's not going to be that way. But that has to be the, the, the sense, the gravity, the weight of it. See, Jesus had something that was precious, that was amazing, and really that would be a transformative and, and radical in this world. And it was that it could only happen through his suffering and his death. And so to be rebuked by Jesus in that way might have seemed harsh. But what it highlighted was the, the, the deathly importance of Jesus' fulfillment of his mission, which included his suffering, his rejection, and his death. And so we might have all heard um, about suffering in the kingdom, right? And I don't, know what, I don't know what kind of our perception or idea of what that suffering might have included. Um, I, I would want to, I don't necessarily want to help like define what that suffering is. Because in part, I, as I was preparing the sermon, I, I just, there was a sense of like, I, I feel like we can start competing of like, oh, is, is this my suffering in God's kingdom or is this not? I can tell you what it isn't. It isn't when we can't get our parking spot and we're having to walk, you know, an extra distance. It isn't when I can't get my coffee in the morning because my kids are disturbing me. That's not the suffering that Jesus is talking about. Ultimately, that suffering really is a suffering of death. And that's pretty grave. And so as we reflect on what it might mean in our lives, I think the first and foremost point is that if Jesus is our Lord and our Savior and we profess our faith in him, if he suffered, and if he was rejected, then that 
would mean that is if we are to follow after him, that there's potential for us to, to experience that. That that could be part of our experience in following after Jesus. And my hope isn't that it would kind of uh, turn us away from Christ. Because as we see in our later passage, there's a gift in that. And so let's move on to this, this next part in verse 34. And I'm going to spend a, a little bit of chunk, uh, time in this one. And it reads, it could be up there. Yep. So, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. To take up your cross is defined as, as to raise, to lift up, to take up. And it's the action of, of picking something up and holding it. And I wanted to start here specifically in, in, in this verse um, because really the emphasis of this entire passage is discipleship. And so to take up your cross was kind of this, this tangible illustration of, of what discipleship was like, that it would, it would require our action. And so in ancient Roman times, the person who was to be crucified had to carry the horizontal beam or the cross beam to the place where they would be executed. So in a literal sense, to take up the cross was to carry this cross beam. Now, my original plan as I was preparing the sermon was that I would get an, an actual cross beam and carry it, right, in, in the process of me preaching through this part of, our, of my sermon. But I wanted to spare myself the embarrassment of, of struggling to hold it um, in front of you all, especially since this is live streamed and recorded. Um, and so I didn't want to do that to myself or to you guys to be like, oh, dude, Jay is really struggling there. <laughs> Instead, let me describe the crossbeam so we get an idea of what it can be like to actually carry one. See, the crossbeam weighed anywhere from 70 to 125 pounds and it would be at least about four feet long. So some of us who maybe like a good challenge might be thinking, that's doable. I think I carry that. But imagine carrying that cross for an hour, for two hours, for a day. At some point, your, your arms, your, your legs, right, and your whole body is, is going to give out from exhaustion. Because if you don't know, when you carry that cross, there's, there's no good way to carry it. You've carried kids, it's kind of the same effect. You've got to get that hip action. But there's nothing. You, you're not strapping it on you. And so at some point, that exhaustion is going to set in, and you will not be able to carry that cross anymore. And I believe that that's what the point of take up your cross really is about. That we weren't meant to be able to carry our cross. We're supposed to. Jesus commands us to take up your cross. That's part of our discipleship. But we actually can't carry our cross, at least not for any extended amount of time. So My first point is this, that our cross should lead us to Christ. So rather, our cross that we are called to carry, should uh, called to take up, should first and foremost lead us to the one who can carry it and actually did carry it. It should lead us to Jesus. It should lead us to the one who overcame sin and death. It should lead us to the one who paid the price that you and I um, might be reconciled back to God. To take up our cross is to be led to the one who saves, 
And so whether you're encountering Jesus for the first time or the, or the hundredth time, he should always be the focus of what it means to take up our cross. You know, the second part of, of what it means to take up our cross is that it should lead us to surrender. See, what happens when the weight of the cross is just too much to bear? Your body's giving, uh, your, your muscles are, are kind of hitting that point of exhaustion, and you're like, oh, shoot, can't do this anymore. Hopefully you don't drop it, because you might crush your toes. But you lay it down. You, you set it down. And that gives us this illustration of what it means to surrender, which is that we're cease. We're ceasing to resist. We're ceasing from resisting. Instead of struggling to hold it, we recognize that we can't. We can't in our own strength. We can't in our own power hold on to that cross, to our sins. That only Jesus can take that up. But what actually holds us back from taking up our cross? Because to say that it's, it's a call to surrender, that's easy to say. But what actually holds us back? And Jesus says that it's to deny yourself. And so it's our pride, it's our self-righteousness, it's our self-absorption, it's our ego. It's to say, I'm good enough, I'm strong enough, I can do this, which is all sin. See, to deny yourself, what it means um, is, is really found in Romans 6.6, 6, where it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. See, Jesus paid a price for us to be free from sin. And what does that mean for us? When we deny ourselves, it means that we no longer have a right to our old way of life. And very practically, what it might look like is that I don't have a right anymore to go to anger when my kids aren't listening to me. It means I don't have a right to greed when I feel like I don't have enough. I don't have a right to go to lust when I feel lonely. We don't have a right to that anymore. What we have is a right and a freedom to choose righteousness. And this is the third point of it, that our cross should lead us to full submission. What do you think Peter's cross was that he had to take up? What was holding him back from fully following Jesus? It was the belief that he was going to be able to experience the seed of power again when Israel was restored. See, I'm going to milk this illustration of the crossbeam. As you're carrying it, right, as I mentioned before, there's no easy way to carry it. You can hold it like this, give yourself about five minutes, and then your, your biceps are going to tremble. You might carry it like this, and then your forearms are going to start trembling. You might put it on one shoulder and walk with it, and then your shoulder is going to get exhausted. You're going to switch it to the other side, and then your other shoulder is going to get exhausted. You might put it on your back, but then your back and your neck is going to get exhausted. And what's happening throughout your legs? They're, they're bearing the weight of that crossbeam. Because remember, it's 70 to 125 pounds. And so your entire body is feeling the weight of having to carry this cross. And friends, that's the point of what it means to submit. Jesus doesn't want just a part of your life where you know, you have that initial profession and, and you're good. You're entered into heaven. You got that ticket, that golden ticket. Jesus says, I want all of you, your whole being, your entire life, your full self. And if we follow through on Peter's story, Peter had to go through some grueling experiences. 
But in the end, his whole self was surrendered to Jesus. And all of glory was experienced by Peter. See, for us, that's the call to full discipleship. That all of our entire being would be given to the Savior, to our Lord. But there's a cost to that. There's the cost of self-denial. There's a cost of giving up our pride. There's a cost of of laying it all down. And and if you've tried, if you've dealt with your pride, you'd recognize that's not easy. It's hard. There's a struggle in that. But it's beautiful. And and the way that it works, right? So with my wife, um, you know, we can be in relationship. We can be in proximity. We can be together. We can go through all these seasons and, and, and all that. We can make life work. We can make our family time work. But the quality of that relationship only is there when her and I exchange on, on ways that we see growth needing to happen in one another. And so if I don't submit to her calling me out and identifying those areas of growth, if she doesn't submit to me, then our quality of relationship's not going to be there. We could be married, but we're not experiencing the fullness of that marriage. And that's what Jesus wants for us, a fullness of relationship with himself, not just God, but in his kingdom. And so my, my question for us, you know, as we kind of look at this, really, we're not carrying the cross. We're carrying the cross beam. And the point is that when we carry that cross beam, it's to point us to the cross. It's to point us to Jesus who actually saves, who carried it all and did it all and completed it. But I think what happens oftentimes for us is that we, we actually stop before we reach the fullness of that cross. We feel the weight of that sin. We feel the weight of that cross. And we're like, oh, okay, I've, I've carried it for five minutes. I've carried it for a day. I've carried it for a month, maybe a year, two years. I think I'm done because I'm pretty tired. And Jesus all along is saying, you've never made it to my feet. You've never fully surrendered and submitted. You've never fully brought it to the cross where it is completed and it is done. Because it's at the cross where our sin is actually worked out. Jesus continues to invite us back to that space over and over and over and over again. So maybe a couple of questions for us to think about on this is, Where have you stopped in the call to discipleship? Where do you need to pick up your cross and continue on? And have you acknowledged, do you actually know what that cross is, what that sin is in your life that you're supposed to take up and bear? All right, I got one more section, and and that's going to be our closing for today. And this is in verses 35 through 38. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If this sounds a little bit contradictory, like it's a paradox of this, you, you, you lose your life, but you save it, you, you, uh, you forfeit your soul, you, you, you return it, right? There's that language there. And in a sense, God's kingdom is paradoxical. But the only reason it's paradoxical 
is because the world that we're in is broken and sinful. And yet, I think there's a purpose for Jesus to say this. And, and um, really what it's getting at is this idea of the cost of non-discipleship. So Jesus wants to highlight not what it is that um, you'll, it will cost you, but really what you will lose that you will not be able to gain. Right? An idea, I try to think of, okay, well, how does it look like practically? Right? And, and I'm going to stretch it a bit, but I was thinking of, of my daughter and her brushing teeth. Right? And it gets to that point in, in kind of our nighttime routine where she's just, it's that last, last leg of it. You just got to brush your teeth and you're done. But she's complaining because she's tired and she wants to go to bed or she wants to get to her book. And so instead of uh, you know, saying, I don't want to do it anymore, I'm done. This is too much for me. Tanya and I, and this is probably not the best strategy, we'll, we'll kind of scare her in the sense of like, hey, well, would you rather get germies in your teeth? And if you get germies in your teeth, you're going to have to go to the doctors, and that's not going to be fun. <laughs> right? Instead of being able to gain kind of this period, she, we, we scare her, and that, that's, I don't know how good of an illustration that was. But it gets to the point, right, where there's this comparison of what, you know, pros and cons in a sense. And so for us, Jesus is saying, I, I want to be able to highlight for you, you guys have gotten this, this understanding of who I am. You know that my kingdom is about suffering. You know that, I, you know, for you to actually follow me is going to be this heavy, weighty call. But I need you to fully understand, if you don't do that, what's on the line for you? What's on the line for this world? And what is that? It's salvation. It's eternity. It's God's kingdom here on earth. It's the family of God. It's reconciliation. It's redemption. It's hope. It's faith. It's love. It's families. For myself, um, just to kind of uh, show, share my personal story in that, you know, early on, I came to faith in high school, and it was kind of a period of experiencing a lot of drama. But I got to the point where um, I, I did put my faith in Jesus. But as I reflected on that period, what I could have lost out on if I didn't step into discipleship, that I would have lost out on knowing that I'm fully loved by God. I would have lost out on the many areas of my life that Jesus healed. I would have lost out on living in the abundance of joy and life together with others in God's family. And even currently in my life right now, if I don't do discipleship, if I don't take it seriously, what would be at stake? It'd be where my wife and my kids lose out on having a husband and a father who embodies love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, uh, self-control, faithfulness. Right? And for my role as a pastor, it would be um, our church would be us losing out on me pastoring from a place of abiding in God's presence. And in those statements, it, there's what's missed out on, and there's also the potential of what could be. That I would be this angry father, that I would be this distant husband, that I would be a, a pastor that really serves out of the striving, needing to fulfill expectations, needing to prove myself. Those kind of go hand in hand. And it's not necessarily that this will happen. There's no 100% guarantee. But that, that goes hand in hand on what's lost. What about for our church? If we do not take seriously the call to discipleship, 
It would be that our youth are not having their personal context for discipleship. It would be us losing out on experiencing the very tangible love and grace of God through each other as the family of God. It would be the neighborhood and others around us uh, losing out on experiencing the generosity of the church. So what about you? What about us? What would be the cost to you and those around you if you did not take seriously the call to discipleship? My closing thought is this. Jesus' invitation was for all to hear. He said this to the crowd, and he said that to his disciples. And he had a conditional clause. If you choose to follow me, if you choose. He never forced us, but he invited us in. And so today, wherever you're at, whatever place in discipleship, wherever you are in your journey, Jesus is constantly giving you that invitation to say, hey, come follow after me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow after me. So let's pray. Lord, we, um, we thank you for um, both your gentle invitation as well as the weight of our sin and conviction, that there is a weight and gravity to um, our consistent saying yes to you as you call out to us. God, you desire for us to experience the fullness of your kingdom and abundance of life, and yet what stops us is our self. And so, Lord, forgive us Holy Spirit, fall afresh on us that, that you would remind us of, of the weight of our sin. And at the same time, you, re, you would show us and remind us um, of what you have done, that you paid the price, and that it can be forgiven, it can be dealt with, that we can live in a newness of life. And so Lord, in one way, I, I pray for that freshness of newness of life for us. In others, I, I pray for a fresh start. Pray for some of us who need to deal with our sins, that we would do that. Pray for those of us that need to say yes to you, that we would do that. And I pray for our identity and our presence as a church, that we collectively would continue to say yes to you and how we live out in your kingdom. That we would take the call to discipleship very, very seriously. Because there's a high cost to it, Lord. And so we thank you for your grace. We thank you, God, for your word. We thank you for your presence with us, God. Because that's your promise. So we pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's, here's how I'm processing this as we prepare for communion. Um, Jay, Jay talked about how, how we answer the question, who do you say that I am? It, it shapes our discipleship. It, it answers the question to what our discipleship looks like. It answers the question to what it means to carry a cross in this season. And um, I think about that specifically right now um, in, uh, in, in the terms of kind of worldwide Christendom, especially here in the U.S., or maybe in just the Western Christian church. Um, I, f- I feel like a lot of, for right now, for a lot of people, um, what discipleship looks like in this season, what it looks like to carry your cross in this season, for some of us, for a lot of us, maybe it's it's, uh, and it's such a hot word right now. It's the idea of deconstruction, right? And how we answer, who do you say I am, shapes the type of deconstruction that we have. Because that in itself, it is a practice of discipleship. We're processing what, is it, what does it mean to follow Jesus in this season? 
And I feel like the, the idea of deconstruction has a bad rap in our, I don't know, in, in, in a, lot, a lot of churches. It's like, oh, deconstruction, don't do that, because that, that's how you backslide, and that's how you, and there's all this kind of like, it's an unwelcome thing, but, um, it, you know, to be honest, like, deconstruction is, is in Scripture. It's a process that's, it's all over Scripture. One of his disciples, I, I feel like he's like the saint disciple of, the patron saint of our generation, Thomas. Like, he, he, he models what it's like to engage Jesus in, like, by questioning things. And as, as a community of faith, we need to welcome that. Like, one of our values as a church is we believe that our faith, the Christian faith, is, is a context to engage in tension. And so discipleship, or deconstruction, really is, is repentance. Deconstruction really is just humility. And that's what, it's, that's what it is to follow Jesus. So as we engage and as we enter into the communion table, can we just take a step back and, and, just, and just soak in the question, who, do you, who is Jesus to you? And let that root your season of discipleship. Let that be the starting point of how you carry your cross in this season. It may look like discipleship, or it may look like deconstruction. It may look like a season of just like old school, like early morning prayer, you know, whatever it is. Um, but let, let the question of, let the answering of who Jesus is be the starting point. So as we prepare, and don't open it just yet, but let's just hold, hold this cup in our hands and let's, let's just take a moment and just soak in. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for you to follow Jesus? Is he teacher? Is he Lord? Is he Savior? Is he someone that is helping you carry your cross? Is he your friend? Is he your faithful father? Whenever you're ready, let's peel off the first uh, plastic layer here. Because um, when Jesus broke the bread and he brought it out, he said, this is, do this in remembrance of me. And as you remember, we also remember that this shapes our relationship with God. This also forms our relationship with one another. So with that in mind, let's read. Mm -hmm.